0: Well, it's kind of a crazy thing. I uh, got back from the dangerous Middle East and uh, got thrashed on a Walnut country. Uh, I'm not sure it was more dangerous, a uh, mob of Palestinian terrorists or a bunch of Walnut guys having fun. It's pretty pitiful that night, Saturday night, uh, after we all got back from the hike. We were all just spread out in the hallway. We had black eyes, broken ankles. Uh, <laughs> you name it, we had it. Kind of like a civil war hospital. So... Uh, I'm kind of uh, changing my views as far as where's a dangerous place to be, but it was a good time. Uh, by the way, before I forget, my parents are here today, and I'm surely love to meet all of you, and uh, <laughs> that would take quite a while, but <laughs> um, by the grace of God, they're one of the main reasons that I'm up here before you today, is I grew up in a solid family that uh, showed what it meant to know the love of God, and uh, so I'm forever grateful to them. Well, as many of you know, I had a chance to travel quite a few places this year, from uh, Eastern Russia to Europe, Israel, and back to Master's again. And now I think I can safely say that there's no place in the world like Master's College. And there are no people like Master's College students. And uh, that's why I regard it as an incredible privilege to uh, to stand up before you today and uh, share with you the message that, that I love most and share it with the people that, that I love most. And although it's a little intimidating to be up here, um, I want so much for each one of you to know the love of God uh, to know... Um, I'm not saying that I've come to know it perfectly. I still have a long ways to go. But uh, four aspects of the love of God have really struck me. Um, and I want each of you to know them because I think they're crucial for uh, complete Christian life, for really knowing who God is. And uh, I want to bring those before you today. As I travel the world... I had sort of a, a romantic picture of the world going into it, but, you know, the world has a way of destroying romanticism like that, and I got, got all excited about it, and uh, and I get to Europe, and we're in the youth hostels, and I'm looking into the faces of the, some of these different youth that are traveling, and all I see is emptiness, and I realize that they're looking for something, and they're not finding it no matter how much they travel, so they keep traveling. The basic problems of humanity don't change from culture to culture. And I realize that. There are no there are no utopias in this world. On the underground subways in Paris and Rome, just masses of people pass before your eyes. And you look into their faces and you realize that they're all stuck in the, in the daily grind just because it's a necessity of the life that we live. Getting to Israel, you know the messes that are going on there. Seemingly inextricable, massive problems. And you look into the faces of the Palestinians and you see that, that frustration and the anger as they're just chafing under an Israeli state that they never asked for. Or the Israelis as they face another terrorist attack. And that really has a way of wearing you down. I was being afraid of another terrorist attack. There was one just a little while ago after I got back. And just destroyed the lives of so many families. So then I get back to the States and cross that customs line and you want to kiss the ground, basically. You realize what a great country we live in, but at the same time, underneath that red, white, and blue sits a nation that is decaying under a lack of moral truth. And, and then in myself, the crushing weight came not only from the world, but from myself. That whole semester, was a real struggle because I was confronted by many of the things in the world that that are within myself. It's not just things in the world, it's things that I saw in myself that caused the very problems that I see in the world. When you see that... Crushing. I wanted to cry out with Paul, "O oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death?" And I know that it's not I alone who struggles with this. It was good at the uh, Waldock retreat the other night. We had a really good time sharing, and we and I listened as uh, as the guys shared their struggles, and they're so similar to my own. I know each one of us uh, struggles with so many of the, the same things. But where's the the hand to lift this incredible weight? Is there a, an answer for all these problems? Is there a single antidote for the world's sickness? If you stopped hundred people, hundred different people on the street and asked them, what one thing does the world need most? And I bet you 80, 90% of them would say, of course we need love. But the problem is, you ask those same 100 people what love is and you probably get 100 very different answers. You see it throughout our culture in all different areas. Love is defined in different ways. It's thrown around so much. I think in the realm of science, the scientists might break love down into chemical components, It's emotional reactions that are a result of evolution. Just think of all the pop culture songs that you know, that uh, sing of love. I mean, that word is thrown around constantly. And yet, what's the deal? No one really knows what it is if you actually stop and ask them. Listen to the uh, words of the 60s song. I'm sure you've all heard it. Come on, people now, smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Let's try to love one another right now. Yeah, that's it. It's just love one another. Everything will be groovy. This is vague idea of what love is. Poets have written of love's virtues for centuries. The poet uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote of love as the highest possible goal that man can attain to. He said, Ah, ah, how skillful grows the hand that obeyeth love's command. It is the heart and not the brain that to the highest doth attain. And he who followeth love's behest far excelleth all the rest the various understandings of love range from the shallow to the sublime but what we need is an absolute answer we need we need the truth we need to know what love really is not someone's opinion is there an answer to this question obviously for us who know the love of God there is a resounding answer before we dig into it let's bow for prayer Lord I thank you for the message of your love And that it answers the great questions, the great dilemmas of humanity. And that it brings to us a hope and a joy and a peace that nothing else can. That your love gives purpose to our lives. I pray today that this message would get to the hearts of every one of my friends here. And that it would completely rework the fabric of their lives. And that they would live in this light for the rest of their days. In Jesus' name, amen. My base passage for today will be First uh, John 4. This statement that God is love is absolutely one of the most astounding statements ever made by man. God is love. To the unredeemed, it sounds, it sounds completely unintelligible. How can God be love when I see the world falling apart around me? But for those of us who are redeemed by that love and have put on those spectacles of faith and can see the love of God, we know what it means to see all the world's troubles, all of our own troubles, swallowed up in the great tide of God's love. God's love is sort of like a great ocean and each one of us like a starfish stranded on the sand. And every now and then, His love comes up, washes Another one in, pulls him into his ocean, pulls him off those dry, hot, barren sands of the world. And for each one of us who have been that starfish and are now dwelling in the sea, we understand how great God's love is. Those of you who go to Grace Community know that uh, Dr. MacArthur just finished a great message, a great series on the love of God. And uh, you may think, uh, I've heard it all now. MacArthur's done everything. But... Don't tune it out, because realize that that the love of God is is an inexhaustible wellspring. We'll be learning about this for eternity, and uh, so I hope that I can bring something fresh to your hearts and minds today. And uh, all these things are both, they're theological, but they're also personal, because last semester was a real struggle, Um, being away from masters, uh, being out there in the world, just seeing the, the hurts in the world, the injustices, and at the same time, seeing some of those same things in myself, and just just kind of crumbling under that and crying out, where's the answer, where's the hand to lift this weight? So I hope that I can communicate both the theological nature of this but also the personal nature um, from my heart. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. we have all heard these verses before. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. Three words with infinitely far-reaching implications. Think about that. Three short words. And we can't even begin to fathom what those three short, short words actually mean. And I would be foolish to think that I could cover it all in one forty-five minute sermon. I'm glad I can't to tell you the truth, because uh, heaven's going to be great, and we have a to discover something that's infinite. It's not going to be boring. Dr. MacArthur talked about that last Sunday. So, four aspects of the love of God that really hit home for me this last semester, that were really my anchor in the storm, that as my heart cried out under all that weight, I learned to recognize these four aspects of the love of God. We have to begin at the beginning. In order for us to be here and know the love of God, the love of God must first be creative. The love of God is creative. We read in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins puts it this way, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. See, if God is love, as John says he is, it's not just saying God does love, God has love, God is love, and therefore everything that he does is an outworking of his love. His love wasn't absent when he created the world, his love was very creative. This is a very crucial point to understand, it may seem obvious, but think about it, God's love creates reality, God's love isn't just some vague impersonal force like you might find in the Eastern religions. God's love creates something. God's love is why why this is here. Well, each one of you and I are here. It acts, creates. We read in Genesis 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Again, God created. The very same God of, who, of whom John wrote, God is love, was there forming the worlds by his hands. Which one of us has not been struck by a sunset? As you see the clouds tinsed with gold and the mountain peaks turning pink in the alpine glow and not realize that God is love, that he cares for his creation. He could have had us living on a steel ball. He could have made us survive. But he creates flowers that will never be seen. And yet he still creates them. It's so clear that his love was, was evident, was there at creation. Numerous times throughout the Psalms, we are called to observe God's love in creation. There's a beautiful Psalm at 145, verse 13 psalmist says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Beautiful picture of the love of God active in creation. If you ever lose sight of the love of God, you can always look to all the evidence that is around you. Be amazed by a sunset. Be astounded by the peak or the intricacy of a leaf. Jesus Himself called His disciples to observe the care which God has for creation but to understand that God loves each one of us infinitely more. John 6, 26. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? So he calls them to look look around you. Look at how much care God has for this little bird and realize that he loves you Even more. More than many sparrows. And yet he feeds this bird. He knows this bird. It's a wonderful thought to think that God's love is directed towards each one of us individually. It's not an impersonal force, it's directed towards each one of you. And it acts, it's creative, it's not just a force. By the way, I'm going to pursue a little uh, book mania tangent here for just a second. Those of you who know me know that I can't speak for very long without uh, getting excited about creativity in the arts. And I think there's uh, grounds here for um, the importance of creativity for Christians. That if God's love is creative, then uh, we also ought to be creative in praise of his love. Um, whatever that is, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, the arts. Whatever gift God has given you, be creative with that. In love. In praise of the love of God. Let's come way back to it, folks. Secondly, second aspect of the creative love of God is shown most magnificently in redemption. We see it in His creation, but it's shown most magnificently in redemption. Once again, the love of God is not an idea; it acts. Come back to uh, 1 John 4. 1 John 4, 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. The love of God is manifested. God chose to send His Son that His love might be manifested and might create within us new hearts. This isn't a mere hope. Like the love that uh, so many people in this world are looking for. I hope there's love out there. I'll use the word because, because I think it has meaning and I think that's the word that I need. That's mere hope. That's not grounded in reality at all. But we have, because of the love of God, being creative, the very real hope that He loves each one of us individually and has redeemed each one of us. And His love is directed towards you and me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are new creations. There's the ultimate example of God's creativeness. He created within us new hearts. He wasn't content to leave us in our degradation, to leave us wallowing in our own filth. He wanted to create within us new hearts. This creative, creative love reached out into the world, the world of death, to create us anew as children of life and light. The love of God is indeed creative, and though this world often appears grim beyond belief, just look at the evidence around you, and that grimness will be swallowed up by the tide of God's love. And you'll feel yourself like that starfish stranded on the sands, once again swallowed up by the advancing tide. Second aspect of the love of God that I'd like to bring to you the love of God is constant. Recognizing the creative aspect of God is so crucial as a foundation, but we must not stop there. Because the love of God can't just be a way to describe what God does. It can't just be, well, love is God creating something. It must be a part of his character. Otherwise, we could expect that maybe it will ebb and flow and change. But John says God is love, remember? Not that God has love, but that God is love. Charles Hodge, in his systematic theology, warns of warns of the mistake of seeing God's love as only a description of what he does. If love in God is only a name for that which accounts for the rational universe, if God is love, simply because he develops himself in thinking and conscious beings, then the word has no definite meaning for us. It reveals nothing to us concerning the real nature of God. The real nature of God. We don't want to know that God does something, we got to know who God is. That's why I think the series is so important. Because what God does flows out of who God is. And if you don't understand that, and you don't yet have a complete understanding of who God is, love must be of nature, not just a symptom of who he is. In 1 John 17, 24, Jesus says to the Father, Thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Imagine that. Before God created anything, He loved. He was complete without creating anything. We can only try to imagine the magnificence of the love that exists in the Trinity. Someday we will know it. But we have a taste of that in seeing the love that is between God and His Son. Francis Schaefer points out that the Trinity is such a crucial doctrine because before God created anything, He had to be complete. And in the Trinity, God had an object of his love in the Son. So he loved before he created anything. He could be inherently loving before there was any object for him to love, any created object. Knowing that God's very character is love and that it cannot change, we come to the very comforting conclusion that God God's love is constant. It does not ebb and flow like our creative passions. As an artist, uh, oftentimes, I just feel completely dead as far as uh, being able to create anything. And if God's love is like that, we're all bummed. (laughs) Because we'll know, we might expect that it could ebb and flow. But the love of God is his nature. It's not something that he does. And therefore, we know that the love of God is constant. This last semester, I was co- confronted by my sin like never before. Just having traveled so much, having seen, seen everything in the world. And I think sometimes we can, we can think that our love's not that, or our sin is not that bad, until we see the extent of the consequences carried out on a larger scale in the world. When we see that sin, we realize that that sin is what's causing the incredible pain and heartache in Israel. Moral depravity in Europe, in our own country, we realize that our sin isn't just the small little seed that stays that way, but when manifested in the world, it causes great pain, great heartache. And so our cry must become, Lord, save me from myself. Oftentimes we think, oh, save me from the world, it's so terrible. But if we're honest, I think we have to acknowledge that our prayer should be, Lord, save me from myself. And that really became the cry of my heart last semester. But it began to cast these long shadows, long shadows of doubt upon my my joy in the love of God, until I came to realize that the love of God is constant. It's not based upon any merit of myself. We just sang several good songs about that today. His love, because it is in Him, not something He does, He can do no other. So it is not based on our merit. John writes in 1 John 10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It never was and it never will be. My worthiness that merits God's love. We hear this truth so often, but I think we forget how it works out in our daily lives. We will acknowledge it theologically, but then forget to understand what that means in our daily lives. If you haven't had a real time of hardship, a real time when your sin just sort of crushes you, then realize that it will come. I'm sure that most of you have heard a message on that. the three different kinds of love. Phileo, eros, and agape. Phileo being brotherly love. And eros, we often think of in terms of the word erotic. So we think of its its uh, connections with that whole realm. But originally, the word had, had a different emphasis. Originally, the, the word eros had to do with the thing being loved having value. And that the object of that love, was only loved because it was valuable. And oftentimes this is how I begin to think of the love of God for me. That He loves me because I'm valuable. Because I'm doing something for Him. When you see the love of God that way, it becomes a vicious cycle of desperate attempts to be valuable enough to be lovable. and begins to crush you. When you see the love of God in an incorrect way. But this is not the love of God for us at all. We're reading 1 John again. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is agape love. Meaning that he gives himself as a free choice, not because of the value of the one loved, Despite our rebellion, He loves us. His love swallows up our unworthiness, our sin, like that ocean swallowing up the starfish. Oftentimes, I give hearty approval to this as well. Thinking that Sure, God loved me when uh, when he sent Christ. And that's the, the supreme example of God's love. But realize that because love, God's love is constant and it's, it's who he is, it's the same today as it was when he sent Christ. And he covers your sin today the same as when he sent Christ. That love continues. It's constant. Do you realize the transforming power of this truth? It frees us up from a system of personal merit from being a slave to thinking that we have to measure up that we have to merit the love of God the focus of our lives shifts from our own sins will they be great to the unconditional immeasurable love of God and the heart which dwells upon the love of God will never have cause to fear have you ever felt that sort of dread rising up within you after you know you've just blown it, you think, uh-oh, God doesn't love me. Stop and think of the implications of God's constant love. First John 4.18 points out the importance of not dreading God. We should fear the Lord. We've talked about it in our counseling class for the last few days of how important it is to fear God. But this is a completely different kind of fear. This means dread that God has somehow given up on me. This is the kind of fear that John speaks of in 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. My mother was uh, raised a Catholic and she has told me stories of just the mortal fear that she sometimes lived in as a child, that she had committed the unpardonable sin, that she no longer merit the love of God. But what a drastic change when she came to the place to realize that God's love is constant. That it's constant because He can be no other. Because God is love. You see, until we stop dreading God and start loving God, we will never learn to love like Him in an unconditional way. If we think God's love is something that ebbs and flows, moves around, shifts its focus then we'll never learn to love like he actually loves in an unconditional way, constantly. And that's the kind of love God wants us to be perfected in, like John writes in 1 John 4. Imagine, Imagine being perfected in the love of God as we're seeing it here. It's an amazing thought. We can also find comfort in the constant love of God and the fact that everything he does in our lives Is a manifestation of His love. Sometimes we think only the blessings are examples of the love of God. But think about it, even God's discipline is the love of God. And last semester, uh, in my life, I felt and saw some of that discipline in my life purging me of wrong thoughts about His love, wrong thoughts about myself. And I had the choice do I choose to take this discipline? I become bitter saying, say, okay, God doesn't love me anymore. Or do I realize that the love of God is constant, realize what His love really is, and take that discipline and allow God to rework my life? Solomon understood this when he wrote in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. My son, do you... discipline of the Lord or loath his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves even as a father, a son in whom he delights. Missing this point, I suggest to you, will be an incredible hindrance in your Christian maturity. Because what God uses most powerfully oftentimes in our lives is discipline and love. And if you miss that tool of God's discipline, that aspect of God's love, then you miss a whole side of what it means to mature in Christ. So don't become bitter at that discipline, but acknowledge that God is love and that everything he does is an example of his constant love. So the love of God is creative. The love of God is constant. And thirdly, the love of God is complete. Even if God's love were completely constant as it is, and yet it were deficient in some way, this would still mean nothing to us. Because we think, well, maybe it's constant, but what if he's not really loving me right now? How do I know that, that he's really able at this moment to cover my sin with the immensity of his love? Thankfully, we have ample evidence that God's love is complete. Completely complete. You could not add more to it. And here's the complete evidence. First John 4, 15-16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There is no greater act of love that has ever been shown than the gift of Christ. There is no more complete act of love Once again, we give mental consent to this and sometimes fail to see its relevance in our daily life. This isn't just a theological truth. It should be theological as well as personal. Understanding the love of God should have a bearing upon our lives as well. Think of this in relation to those ever-present trials that, that seem to bring your sanctification to a roaring halt during those times when I'm just not getting anywhere, you know? I'm at a standstill, are you? I'm going backwards. Where where is that sanctification? Where is that growth? Where is that maturity? Well, think about it. If God's love is so complete that He sent His Son as the complete, perfect example of His love, then does it even seem possible that He will allow your life to fall short in the end? Absolutely not. It's ludicrous to think of it that way when we put it in those words and we compare those. It's only when we begin to think wrongly of God's love that we think somehow we won't ultimately be perfected in love or somehow we're blowing it so much that God can never draw us onward and upward into his love. When someone buys a precious gem, they don't throw it on the carpet to be sucked up by the vacuum cleaner. They take it and they put it in a ring. They cherish it, they polish it the price that you can pay for any gem in this world is far less than the price that God paid to send His Son. One verse that I often tune, turn to for reassurance in those times when when it just seems like my sin is bearing down upon me and keeping me from growth is Philippians 1.6. Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work and He will perfect it until the day of Christ. He will perfect it. There's no room there for ifs or buts or maybes. He will perfect it. And we know that's true because God says it here in His Word and because He showed it to us in the Incarnation, in the death and resurrection. What more evidence can you ask for that God's love is complete and that He will bring us to perfection, that He will perfect in us what He began? The unbeliever, the uh, problem of pain in the world is often one of the greatest stumbling blocks to their faith. I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people, maybe in a uh, evangelistic context or an apologetic setting, where they can't believe because they see too much pain. All you have to do is read the front news page of any newspaper and see that there's a lot of pain out there. And there's pain in our lives as well. We've all felt it. This side of heaven, there will be, because the world is fallen. But understand what the complete love of God does to that pain. Some people think the love of God should free us from pain, but you know that we still have it in our lives. The love of God doesn't free us from pain. He changes our pain, transforms our pain to be like His, and His pain healed the world transforms our pain to be like His. That pain and discipline, that purging that you're feeling, is coming from the very same source of the love that healed the complete world, the entire world. In the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis describes the complete love of God as an intolerable compliment. He writes, If God is love, He is by definition something more than mere kindness, And it appears from all records that though he has often rebuked us and condemned us, he has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. You understand what he's saying? That if God is truly loved, he's not content to leave any filthiness, any unholiness, in our lives He loves us so completely that He will never leave that there He will pull that out the dawn of eternity You will know what it means to be completely free from sin and be able to praise God for all eternity because His love is complete and would not allow you to stay in that position fourth aspect of the love of God the love of God is conquering. It's on four seas. When compared to the creative, constant, and complete love of God, our love seems but a drop in an unstoppable, mighty river. We often fall into the delusion of thinking that God's love is somewhat like ours. When we see our own fickleness, we see the own, our own faithfulness and love. We get worried, thinking, boy, the love of God is like this. There's no hope for me. And we begin to be crushed by our own sin in the world once again. That's only when we begin to think of the love of God as if it were our own love. We need to understand what the love of God really is. And this fourth aspect is really the the consummation of the first three. If all those thing, three things are true, then this fourth thing... Must be true. The gates of hell could not stand against such a conquering love. Much less can can our own sin stand against the conquering love of God, the complete, constant, creative love of God. I was struck by by this last semester in a very. Uh, Powerful way, very tangible way. In my archaeology classes, I had two archaeology classes. I had archaeology on the brain by the end of the semester. We would go out and study uh, tells. You know what a tell is? It's like a layer, a layered mound of all the different civilizations that have lived at that spot for all the centuries past. And archaeologists love these things because they can dig down and see all the different layers. And obviously, the one on the bottom will be the oldest, and they can get a dating for all these different, different civilizations. And archaeologists are kind of strange because the thing that they love to find most is a destruction layer. There's no destruction layer there. They're kind of bummed. But if they find all these burned out houses and uh, spear tips, and they're happy. All right, we can date this thing. <laughs> Even my archaeologist teacher admitted that uh, it can be a little strange sometimes that way. One example of this is on the city of David in Jerusalem. It's just this little strip of land next to the spring. But there's this graphic evidence of the conquest of uh, Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586. You find spearheads everywhere. You find burned out rooms. It's incredible that the evidence of destruction is just everywhere. And in so many other spots all over the country, you always find destruction layers. There's so much destruction in, that, in the history of that country. And many of you know this, obviously, because so much of it's recorded in the Bible. And it just struck me with a new uh, new vengeance actually seeing the evidence of all that destruction right there in front of me. I could go on and on about the tragedies that are recorded in the stone and in history and even in our Bible. But as I was contemplating that, as it was sort of, weighing down upon me once again as I saw that not only is there a lot of pain in the world right now, but throughout history, one light began to shine out through the middle of that in my thinking. And that one light grows and grows to completely overwhelm all the tragedy, all the heartache, all the pain that we can imagine ever happening. Imagining Christ. Entering that world as a man of love. Imagine him giving the Sermon on the Mount in a place like Israel, where meekness hadn't been the rule at all. Might was right in Israel for centuries past. The strongest king with the strongest army could come in and trash the place. And here comes one man in the middle of that, preaching love and redemption. Jesus knew the pain of the world all too well. And we see many instances of when it broke his heart. Luke 19, 42. As he entered Jerusalem, they looked up at the city. He's riding the donkey he looks looks up at the city. And he wept. If you can imagine the God of the universe weeping. It reads, verse 42, And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And sure enough, 70 A.D. comes along and Titus trashes Jerusalem. They can hardly find anything left from that time period because he didn't leave one stone upon another. And it broke Jesus' heart. Imagine him standing there crying out. He knows the complete love of God. He knows how immense God's love is. And yet these people are desiring to wallow in their own pain. That's not the end of the story. In his farewell discourse to the disciples, Jesus revealed to them the true outcome of the battle and showed them that it wouldn't even be close. The love of God against the world wasn't even a close contest. And they needed to remember this because they would be persecuted. Jesus realized the the difficulties that were coming upon them. So he says to them, John 16, 27, The Father Himself loves you because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father, I came forth from the Father and come have come into the world, I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, An hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation but take courage I have overcome the world. I can imagine Peter's jaw at this point just kind of dropping. What? I mean come on overcome the world we've seen you do a lot of amazing things but do you realize how big this world is? Do you realize how many armies have come marching through here over the centuries? That's a lot of power there. But Jesus knew that it was not not a contest at all. Because he had perfect knowledge of the Father's love. He could see it in its entirety. He had known it for eternity and knows it now and wants us to share in it. He knew that the Father's conquering love made this world look like a toy boat going over Niagara Falls. He knew that the Father's love that the contest the Father's love in this world it looked like a Mustang basketball game 100 to 1 and Jesus went on to prove it he went on to prove that the love of God is conquering and all the legions of hell couldn't stand against it so what does this mean to us right now it means that when you look into the face of a cruel world and in the face of your own sin we can know that the love of God is not losing ground. It's not changing. It's not being pushed back. It's moving onward completely, conquering all sin and will one day be revealed to us in its entirety. Not only does it conquer the world, but it conquers our own lives. Sometimes our sin grows so large in our own vision that it seems that nothing will be able to overcome that sin. But understand the conquering love of God. If God's love conquers the world. And surely his love can conquer the sin in your life. I only have a few minutes to close up here, but I want to make sure that we understand what this means in our daily lives. What does this mean as far as obedience for us? Knowing something about God necessarily requires obedience as well. I offer three things to you. First of all, the thrust of John's epistle is that knowing God's love must cause us to love one another. You'll have to read the book uh, by yourself sometime later on, but it's amazing to understand, to see how much he emphasizes what it means to love God and therefore to love one another. It's the thrust of the whole book, over and over, love one another. And he even goes so far as to say that if you don't love one another, then you don't know God. That's a frightening thought, but it's also a comforting thought. Do you have doubts about your your salvation? Look within your heart and see if there's a reflection of God's love there. John writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. By this we know that we abide in him. Look into your heart for the reflection of God's love. Secondly, loving God means keeping his commandments. First John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Why does he say his commandments are not burdensome? Because if we truly understand the love of God, we will have no need to gripe and pout about service to God you know any person that's completely falling down in love with some person you know that if that person asked is asked by their beloved to do something they don't say okay I'll do it but they say they jump right on it you don't have to tell them a second time yeah I'll do it they're probably even doing it before they got asked and that's what the love of God should evoke within us is that kind of love for him obeying his commandments which we obey because we love him thirdly on a day to day basis, the love of God is our hope. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, Paul exhorts the faithful to exult in tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. And proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Picture of pouring there is poured, a deluge completely filling us like the picture of Niagara Falls again. And that gives us hope in our day-to-day tribulations in the midst of discipline. I want to close quickly with a a hymn that was written by a man who know, knew what it meant to have pain in his life transformed by understanding the love of God. The man's name was George Matheson and he was engaged to a, to a young lady whom he loved very deeply but then during their engagement, he became blind, and his fiancée cut off the engagement. Now, you can imagine the pain that he felt at that point. He felt unwanted, unloved, like nobody wants to love me. Imagine just the torment that went through his head. But he didn't allow that bitterness to go on, and it transformed his pain. Instead of being something that caused bitterness within him, his pain gave him a new understanding, a deeper understanding of the complete love of God. I'd like to close with this hymn. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its bowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red. Life that shall endless be. Allow God to transform your life by complete understanding of his love. Please stand with me and pray and be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for the immensity of your love and the great evidence of your love that we have in your word and in Christ and in your creation. I pray that the pursuit and the desire of our life will be to know that love deeper that our lives might be swallowed up by the advancing tide of your complete love and that it might completely rework how we see the world how we see our own sin and how we see our service that we might serve you out of complete gratitude for the love which you have for us and that we would be completely ecstatic in this life, knowing that your love is perfect. And having caught a glimpse of that love, causes us to serve with great fervency. In Jesus' name, amen.